So tonight we are gonna be continuing our sermon series in the book of Mark. This is week two, so if you missed last week, you didn't miss a lot, and I'll try to bring you up to speed. I'll actually read the first 13 verses uh, in Mark. It says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in high school, I thought that my life's trajectory would go in a, in a different direction. I had it all mapped out. I was going to go to Bible college for a year, play soccer and baseball with my friends, and then transfer to a real school so that I could become a math teacher. I was one of those high school students that um, we had a small enough private school. I graduated with, I believe, 17 people and they had like this open mic time where you could kind of go up. And I remember going up to the front and this initiated my public uh, embarrassment slash um, public, public displays of my emotional-ness. So I was up there um, singing the praises of my math teacher saying, if I could just be as good of a teacher as Mr. Trice, I would just be good. And I'm like crying. I took a box of tissues up there with me. It was, it was a whole big mess. But in my mind, I thought that I was going to be a, a math teacher. And I thought that I was also going to find the girl that I would fall in love with in college. And we would be married immediately after graduation. By the time I was 21, by the time I was 23, I'd have my first child, not me, but her. And we would just start building this family together and it would be great. That isn't the way that it worked, um, but it worked out well. I waited a bit and found the right one, and in the midst of Kate and I uh, dating, it was a, a torrid love affair, and it was a very quick dating period where we kind of knew early on that it was gonna probably culminate in marriage. And I remember thinking that um, I had it all figured out. That's kind of a life motto that I I possess at most times. And people that had been married for, for some time would, would tell me things and I would just kind of think, okay, yeah, that's probably not how it's gonna be for me. But I remember that day and I remember this one in particular, Kate, she, she started sobbing as soon as her feet hit the ground walking up to the aisle and I was getting kind of concerned. There's a pretty nice picture of me and I'm very like either scared or I just don't know, like, is she crying because she's sad? Does she wanna run away? What's going on here? Like, <laughs> 
Um, but this is during our vows, and Kate, that was Kate's first experiment with public professions of uh, emotionalness. Um, but for us, that day symbolized a change in the game. Things were no longer the same for us and for, for us as individuals and for us as a, as a couple. It completely reoriented the way that, that I saw things and I saw the world and I began uh, as months and, and years passed thinking about this advice I've heard from people and how they were right and they knew things that I didn't know and how it took me getting to this point with Kate to, to really understand what was going on. Something similar happened um, about a year ago. Oh, I'm gonna, I'll keep it together. Um, when, when we brought this little guy into the world, again, not me, Kate, but I was there, um, and I was severely traumatized by the goings-on of what was happening, um, not just in that typical sort of way, but in the way of like cord wrapped around his neck, not hearing him when he came out. I remember Kate looking at me, being so excited that he was finally out there um, after three and a half hours of trying to meet this little guy that we didn't know if it was a guy or a girl at this point, and she looked at me and said, I don't hear him, what's wrong? And just having eight to 10 nurses in the room trying to figure out what was going on with this little guy and then rushing him to, to the ICU, the NICU. Um, Kate kind of came to terms pretty quick and I was sitting in the chair and she said, we had, the, we had bought these little candy cigars and she said, go give those candy cigars to our parents and family that were sitting out there and they'd been waiting. I was like, I just need a minute to regroup. And I think that's kind of where I've been for the last um, year and a couple, a couple of weeks, like game changer. Like you hear the things that people say um, that have kids and it doesn't really affect you in the way until you are holding one of your own and you really do go home and you look down and you say, what do we do now? And each day since it's kind of been, what do we do now? He's at that like precocious stage where he's getting into all kinds of things and we'll say, Abe, don't do that. And he'll look back and like smile. It's like, okay, I know that the fall is real and sin sinfulness is happening and this is being demonstrated in my one-year-old son and I don't know how to, to discipline him in a way and to teach him in a way that, that he would understand. But like, total game changer. There's lots of other instances in my life and probably in, in your life as well. And some of them center around these great moments of marriage and kids and um, getting accepted into this program or graduating from this program or um, just the, the many things that, that bring us joy that kind of shift how we begin to think about things. For some of us, it's, it's a little bit darker. It's death, it's divorce, it's brokenness. It's things that you go through that completely and utterly change your outlook on life. For the authors of the New Testament, it was the experience of, in some instances, having seen and been a part of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For others, it was hearing the stories and being impacted by them so greatly that this thing that happened in the past, this thing that people had been anticipating for centuries, this thing that people had been talking about, perhaps, when it actually came to fruition, it completely and utterly changed, I would say, the scope of human history. These examples of Kate and I's marriage and, and Abe, which are very much um, just for us, um, pale in comparison to the, to the greatness of the story of Jesus. 
Last week we looked at the first verse of Mark, really, which says the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark begins this book by, by setting the scene to, as if to say, it's all happening. Everything that I'm about to tell you is the beginning, it's the glimpse, it's the, um, it's, it's the start of this good news. Good news, as we looked at last week, that is not just limited to heaven or hell, individual salvation, um, it's, it's cosmic where Jesus has changed the whole scope of human history. Jesus has begun to restore all of humanity uh, to himself. Tonight, we are gonna move from, from this moment where Mark is beginning to, to set the scene for what has happened and, and how that makes sense for us. And with our normal protocol, I want to kind of look at these verses in light of their historical and literary context first and hope to get to some conclusions for us. I think the way that we've heard the stories of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' um, temptation, there's truth in there, but the way that Mark is telling these stories is so different that the things that he wants us to see and perhaps the things that he wants us to, to hold on and to apply are a bit different. Uh, so we're gonna kind of set this up for you. In verse four it says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. This, this theme of going out into the wilderness was one that was not unique to John, though when John was out in the wilderness, it seems as though he thought that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. In particular, he thought that he was fulfilling this text, the, the latter half of which is in italics, comes from Isaiah chapter 40. The first couple lines actually could be found in Exodus 23 and Malachi 3.1. So it's basically taking all this Old Testament teaching and trying to say, this is the person who I am. This is the job that I have. This is who I've called, been called to be. It says, I will send my messenger ahead of you your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. John sees this, understands his duty to prepare the way for the Messiah. Whoever that was, he might not have known. In Mark, there's no clues there that say when he saw Jesus hitting the water that he knew what was happening. But what we see is, is John fulfilling this role of being one who removes himself from society and goes out into the wilderness to begin to prepare for the Messiah's arrival. Other people were doing this as well. Um, one group is called the Essenes, and they're out on the outskirts. And they were kind of a crazy group of priestly type people that would go out and had a very strict code of conduct, and they were always ritually purifying themselves. They were um, writing down a lot of scripture. We actually found a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is probably based on, on this community's writing. And in one of their texts, it says, they shall separate from the habitation of ungodly men and shall go into the wilderness to prepare the way of him, as it is written, prepare in the wilderness, the way, make straight in the desert a path for our God. So this group, which is set up right around here in Qumran, probably, could potentially be um, a, a group that John knew. Some people would say that he was even a part of that group. It's very difficult to say one way or the other uh, with assurance, but it seems as though he's got the same kind of MO. He's removing himself from society. He's going out into the wilderness as if to fulfill this text in Isaiah to say the end is happening right now and we need to be ready for it. Um, 
this whole thing, you can't really see it here. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Dead Sea. And, and running in between the two is the Jordan River. We don't know specifically where John was, but we do think that because uh, of the Essene community down here, that he was probably somewhere in this region. We also don't know if he was on the west side of the Jordan or the east side. We do know that he was having some run-ins with Herod Antipas, whose um, setup was somewhere in this general region. So it might have been on the east, it might have been on, on the west. We don't know with, with certainty again. Also, side note too, while we're on this map, Jesus is up here in Nazareth. His trek is one that, that is a little bit of work. He's coming down to, to participate in this, um, in this ritual in, in a very beautiful way. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness with all of this stuff, this, um, these motifs that the ancient Jewish audience would have known. They would have understood what he was doing and why he was doing it, which is why he was probably drawing such a crowd. And he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, one author, this is N.T. Wright, says, John was turning the story of the Exodus into a drama, a play, and hearers that they were cast they were to come through the waters and be free. They were to leave behind Egypt, the world of sin in which they were living, the world of rebelling against the living God. They, the Israel of the day, were looking in the wrong direction. It was time to turn around and go the right way. What N.T. Wright is saying is John is enacting a, 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 a reenactment of Exodus. This story that all of Israel would have known, this story that symbolized a people. We were oppressed, and yet God has brought us out of oppression, taken us into the promised land. For these people at this time, they were still under oppression. They were still looking back to the story of the Exodus, waiting for God to deliver finally, climactically, definitively. And again, John is sending out these messages. It's now. It's happening. Everything that you've been waiting for is taking place. Other people put a little bit more meat to this bones. Uh, it, this is R.T. France. It seems that John's focus was on repentance in the face of the threat of divine judgment, and his object was not simply to get people baptized. When we see this text of, of Jesus being baptized, a lot of us will put our own baptismal practices in light of this, but it seems like there's something going on uh, under the surface here. It says that John was calling together the repentant and restored people of God for the imminent eschatological crisis. That's fancy talk. That's Bible scholarship in work there. Basically, it means like things were happening and the world was changing and all the things on the end are coming to fruition. Same kind of idea here by Joel Marcus. He says, John's baptism was linked with the end time cleansing and renewal to be accomplished by God's spirit. What John was doing in a sense was he was starting a movement of people who would identify as those who were seeing the end coming to fruition, who were living in expectancy of the Messiah showing up at any moment, who were living in a different era, all the stuff in the past, all the promises, all the, all the scriptures that they've seen, these stories of exodus and redemption, they felt as though they were living in the midst of the fulfillment of these passages. This was John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. 
John, again, setting himself in this context of there's somebody that's coming that's gonna show up that's going to change everything. The world in which you know and the world in which you are now living, this guy is going to change it all. The end is now. It's happening. He's saying prepare yourself for what's going to take place. Now what's interesting is John is setting this up and the person that shows up is the Messiah to be baptized, to enter into this story. It says at the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, which is way up in the north, all the way down to where John probably was uh, in the Jordan, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The question then becomes, why would Jesus be baptized if this baptism was one for repentance and forgiveness since Jesus had no sins to be forgiven of? It seems as though that Jesus is participating in the drama. He's participating in this new exodus. And this has huge ramifications for us as a people, even now. Jesus was not content just to kind of be in abstraction. Jesus was in the thick of things. He understands where we've been. He understands what we're going through. This was a moment of solidarity where Jesus was participating in alongside of his people, knowing that things were about to change. Jesus was identifying with the past, seeing all the things that had been laid out back in the Old Testament that, were, that everyone was waiting for. He was fulfilling those, but he was also looking ahead to what he would actually do with his life, his death, and his resurrection. For the book of Mark, this is like the story through which you, you see the rest of the book. In these first 13 verses, Mark is saying, you have to understand this in order to understand what follows. Jesus is one who is removing himself, going to this wilderness community and participating within it, reenacting the story of Exodus, not in this temporary way, but he was bringing people into the real promised land. Like Noel talked about a few weeks ago, the better rest. Jesus was providing it for them. He's saying it's happening right now. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven. This is different than the other gospels. This is different than Matthew and Luke and John. Only in Mark do we see this moment where Jesus is understanding something. It doesn't say that the people that were there were also seeing this scene taking place. Mark is kind of putting a microscope lens on Jesus as if to say, this is happening only for you. And what Jesus saw is the heavens being torn open. This is not the same word that's used in any of the other gospels either. It's a lot more violent. It's a ripping open. The same word that's used for the tearing of the veil at the end of the, the gospel story. Um, and what Jesus sees is the spirit descending on him like a dove. And this voice comes from heaven and it says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This, this quotation from God to his son is taking some Old Testament scriptures, some of which from Psalm 2, some of which from Isaiah 42. You are my son. This is usually applied to kings. And Jesus is here the... Um, the benefactor of that, the new king in a sense. And we also see in Isaiah 42, Jesus as the servant uh, whom God loves. In Mark's baptism story, Jesus is affirmed in his messianic role. All of this at this point is, is very much not applicable. I think for, for most of you as you're sitting here, 
okay, preacher man, that's all great, maybe even a little boring, what's the point? Why do we care about any of this? What does this have to do with us? Think about it for a second. For those of you that have relationships with your father, what is it like when you come home and they say, son or daughter, I'm proud of you. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I support you. That thing that you just did, I saw it. It was awesome. You're great. You're my favorite. I love you. Give me a hug. For a lot of us, we would say, that would be nice, but I don't know if that scenario is, is a place in which m- many of us dwell. A lot of times we think that Jesus is, is um, immune to all of the struggles is immune to all of the things that that we go through, but in this moment, as Jesus is getting ready to launch his ministry, it's like in Mark, it's this moment between dad and son where he says, I see what you're doing, and I'm proud of you. I love you. I'm with you. Remember this moment, because you're gonna need it. Jesus' life was not one of peaches and cream, even though some of the Jesus movies that we've seen, it seems as though he's just kind of floating around untouched by by the world. There's specific moments in Jesus' life where he needs that affirmation. There's specific moments in your life when you need that affirmation. There's some of you even in this room that when you hear this idea of God saying to Jesus, I love you, I'm with you, I believe in you, I'm behind you. You have no frame of reference for that because you don't hear that in life. And the things that I say up here that hint towards God loves you, he cares about you, he fights for you, he's willing to sacrifice himself for you, you have no frame of reference and you just kind of leave them there and say, nah. In this story, though, we're seeing a moment that is potentially important, not just for Jesus, but also for us as well. As the story continues, the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness yet again, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. There's a lot of themes here that Mark is bringing to bear. This idea of Jesus being in the wilderness 40 days might bring to um, an ancient audience's mind Elijah, who was in the wilderness for 40 days, not eating, waiting. Uh, It might make us think about, again, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It might make us think about um, Moses being on top of Sinai for 40 days when he gets to law. Like there's a lot of references here with this. And, And also what's happening with Jesus being tempted by Satan and being with the wild animals has caused a lot of people to stop and say, what's going on with that detail? It's not in any of the other stories. Matthew, for example, will, will really um, blow this story up and have Jesus and Satan kind of going back and forth and Satan tempting Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and then Jesus quoting scripture and then Satan twisting scripture and then Jesus quoting scripture. It's like all these, this back and forth. But here in Mark, it's just, it's just two verses. The Spirit sends him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and angels attended him. Great, let's move on. Part of this is Mark's just rapid storytelling pace, but part of this is begging us to slow down and to consider what's happening here again. This is Jesus 
reenacting Israel's story. In the Garden of Eden, for example, we have Adam who's just hanging out. He's got this one command, don't eat from this tree. And he's with the animals and everything's good and everything's lush and everything's verdant and he's got the world on a string and he's just hanging out with the animals and then sin happens and everything gets jacked up. And it's as if we see Jesus here in the the wilderness being tempted by Satan and it's a reenactment almost of Eden, except this time it's the anti-Eden. It's Jesus in light of all the stuff that's happened to make the world what it is, yet he withstands the temptation. It's also symbolic of of the people of Israel as they go through the Exodus, they just start mumbling and complaining and groaning and saying, Moses, you brought us out here to die, and we see Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, just waiting, being everything that Israel was not. We also see that despite this moment of of God saying to Jesus, I love you, I'm with you, I care for you, it does not safeguard Jesus from going through difficulties. It does not safeguard Jesus from being tempted. It does not make Jesus' life all good all the time. For many of us, we think that if we just accept Jesus, everything works out, and I imagine there's 95 to 100% of the room that could say, it hasn't really worked out for me, because life is hard. But in the midst of this, we see this, this moment of God saying, I'm with you, I care about you, I'll be there for you, even when it's hard. And we also see that in light of this Uh, divine affirmation, Jesus is ready for battle. Some people see this as a precursor for the rest of the book where Jesus is doing um, battle with Satan and his forces of evil throughout the book of Mark. It's a a weird uh, kind of literary motif that none of the other gospel authors seem to be tapping into. But what we see here in this beginning is um, Jesus setting this up, setting himself up for, for victory. Now, what does this have to do with us? I wanna try to tie some of this together. As we've seen in in these first 13 verses, Mark is is setting the context for the book as it's going to unfold, and he's saying, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the beginning of it. And in order to understand what this means, you have to understand these stories. There was this community of people that were anticipating the end, and there was this guy named Jesus who showed up and became everything that they needed. He showed up in the wilderness to take on this baptism of repentance and forgiveness, even though he didn't need it. He showed up to enact this Exodus motif. He became the person that would begin to bring these stories to their real and final conclusion. And even though his dad says, I love you, I care about you, I'm with you, it did not safeguard his life from difficulties. As we think about all of that stuff, this is the big point, because I think that for some of us in the room, we need to hear this tonight. So if, if this historical literary stuff doesn't do it for you, come back to me right now and hear this. This is N.T. Wright, he says, the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point, that when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we see, not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. It sometimes seems impossible, especially to people who have never had this kind of support from their earthly parents, but it's true. God looks at us and he says, you are 
are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. In the midst of the mess, in the midst of the stress, in the midst of the brokenness and hurt, in the midst of everything that we walk through, in the midst of blessing and joy and the moments of weddings and babies and all good things, we still hear this message through Christ, through his perfect life, his beautiful work, his healings, his teachings, his brutal death and his glorious resurrection. Through belief in that, we not only align ourselves with this community of people that are beginning and continuing on a movement, we are also stepping into this story and we are becoming the folks that hear God say to us, you are my dear, dear child and I'm delighted in you. My hope and my prayer is that regardless of circumstance, regardless of past, regardless of baggage, that that message can cut through all of the walls that have been constructed between you and God and begin to break down and tear open. The heavens would be nice, but let's just begin to tear open some of those walls that we've constructed. And as we live our lives, we begin to hear this whisper in the back of our minds, you are my dear dear child. Through Christ, I'm delighted in you. I know that at times, talks like this seem really churchy and they seem really theological and they seem really put on. But I hope that you can take that one line and tuck it away and wait for God to prove himself to you and can prove that message to be true in your very lives. For some of you that means forgiving. For some of you that means um, allowing that word to take root in you. For some of you it means allowing to um, distance yourself from all the things you've heard in the past. But I do hope that tonight, through Jesus' participation in all of this stuff, that we would begin to hear this in a new way with much more meaning than it has ever had.